Today's reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16, through to the end of chapter 4, verse 16. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward, than if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. But who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquillity than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have good return for their labour. If one of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Well, good morning. Let me lead us in prayer together. Our great God and Father, we continue to give you thanks for your priceless word that speaks today. And sometimes it's easy to work out what you're saying and sometimes a little bit harder. We come this morning to a passage. It's sometimes a bit hard to hear your voice. But would you speak, Father? Would we hear you clearly this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I read a, um, a couple of things recently, well, the last few months or so, highlighting the difference between uh, Western thought with sort of its emphasis upon the individual and Eastern thought with its emphasis on the collective. Those are very lazy labels, but um, sometimes how they do get used. So there's some apparently well-known research from uh, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, uh, that um, took some footage of uh, an underwater scene and showed it to some U.S. students and some Japanese students at universities. And uh, the difference was quite striking. So the American students, uh, when asked to describe it afterwards, said, you know, there were um, three fish and they were coloured like this and uh, the sort of bellies of the fish, uh, uh, they were a bit lighter. We, we noticed that. Oh, very good. By contrast, the Japanese students said, oh, well, the background was, was green and there were rocks and there were shells and, and the, the water was lighter towards the top of the screen and, and there were some fish in the foreground. I, I, I didn't really... Three, four, five fish in the foreground, something like that. And it's enormous difference upon the, the, the small central details and this sort of emphasis upon the background, the wider frame. And apparently that's quite a well-known phenomenon. Uh, or similarly, studies have looked into uh, reports uh, over a number of weeks of uh, how newspapers reported that the, the um, uh, actions of two murderers, two Chinese-American murderers uh, in New York, so that, and they, the New York Times and the Chinese World, World Journal, and how this was reported over a number of weeks. And again, the New York Times emphasized, well, their personal failings that the individuals were deeply flawed. Uh, the Chinese World Journal emphasized, oh, both had lost their jobs. Uh, both had become somewhat distant from their friends and the wider Chinese community. Again, individual versus the collective. Now, you probably want to say both and individual responsibility. But again, just striking the different emphasis. Now really, I only mention that because our passage today in Ecclesiastes 3 and 4 is a distinct challenge to the individualist mindset. It's so much harder to read this for a Westerner, I think. What is going on here? Well, the subject is life under the sun, which uh, we've said before in the book of Ecclesiastes just means life in this world. If Let's pretend there's no God, but just this, this is all there is. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian, a religious person, not a person. The life in this world, the frustrations of this world, and he's going to say three different things about life under the sun. So chapter 3, verse 16, I saw something else under the sun, and he'll describe wickedness and death. Uh, then chapter 4 verse 1, I look again and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. And then uh, lastly, chapter 4 verse 7, I saw something meaningless under the sun and he'll talk about loneliness. So here are the frustrations of life in this world. That's the subject. Uh, wickedness and, and death, oppression secondly, uh, loneliness and the purpose of him saying all this is, don't trust yourself. Trust God, not yourself. Okay, that's what he's going to say. Trust God, 
and not yourself. As with so much in this book of Ecclesiastes, that the teacher wants to crush the myth of human autonomy. So we will look at these uh, three sections, okay, and we'll turn them into a, a statement. So don't pretend you're good, chapter three. And then secondly, don't grasp over, don't grasp after too much, chapter four, uh, one to six. And then finally, don't go it alone, chapter four to the end, okay? Don't pretend you're God. Don't grasp after too much. Don't go it alone. And his point is, trust God, not yourself. Let's work through them then. First of all, um, chapter 3, verses 16 to uh, 22, don't pretend you're God. Chapter 3, verse 16, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. It's not, you see here, not just that there's injustice, but it's in the very place where there's meant to be justice. It's in the courtroom. In the courtroom, there's wickedness. That makes you despair. We watched as a family uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mississippi Burning. Uh, still a, a very good film. Uh, Gene Hackman, deeply menacing uh, in it. But uh, most will know or, or remember, uh, tells or retells the events of summer 1964, when uh, three civil rights activists in Mississippi were uh, murdered with collusion from the local uh, police force and um, sort of the worst of overt racism at the time, Klansmen, etc. Uh, but there's one point in the middle of the film where uh, three white guys are on trial for murdering a black bloke and uh, they're guilty. It's obvious they're guilty. The evidence is irrefutable that they're guilty. And the jury finds them guilty, which is a bit of a shock uh, in, in this town. But then the judge stands up and says, well, all three of you, you're clearly guilty of murdering this man, and I give you a suspended sentence. I've seen this film before, but even watching it again, you still, there's something in you just says, no, you can't. They've murdered a man, and they just get to walk out free. In the place of justice, in the courtroom, wickedness. Well, that makes you despair. So how does the teacher reflect upon this? Well, verse 17, I saw this, it was terrible. Verse 17, I said to myself, well, God will bring into judgment both the righteousness and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Well, I said to myself, says the teacher, judgment will come. God will judge them. It's very strong, isn't it? Verse 17, a time for every activity to judge every deed. And there are points where we really need to know that. When justice is not done in this world, that it will come when dictators die in luxury, when uh, the super wealthy hire you know, the celebrity lawyer, Mr. Loophole, and um, he gets them off where everyone else knows there should be a penalty to pay. It's so frustrating. There will be a day. We need to know that. 
But then there's a further reflection, verses 18 to 21. And this probably isn't what we're expecting. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they're like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. And we read this and we think, what? What are you talking about? It's one of the places in the book where we get most irritated with the teacher. And we want to say to him, hang on, you say there's injustice in the world, but you don't say fight it. You say there's death, but you don't say there's an afterlife. What's wrong with you? What sort of biblical author are you? I mean, the Old Testament prophets scream at us. If there's injustice, you've got to fight it. Don't allow it. God hates it. Fight it. And the New Testament shouts at us, don't be uncertain. There is an afterlife. And if you trust in Jesus, it's physical, bodily resurrection. He's come back and told us that. So what are you doing here, teacher? And plenty that I've read this week just simply say, how embarrassing. We have to ignore what the teacher says. Problem with that is he does know. Later on in the book, chapter 8, verse 11, he says, oh, there does have to be justice. You've got to ensure there's justice or society breaks down and you get vigilantes taking things into their own hands and that's no good. Chapter 12, verse 7, he says, oh, there is an afterlife. The spirit goes to be with God when you die. I mean, it's not as clear as the New Testament, but it's certainly clear that there's something else. It's very different from chapter 3, verse 21. And either you say the bloke's incompetent and can't remember what he's written. Or you say, what is your point here in chapter 3? And the answer must be in verse 18. As for humans, God tests them. Why? So that they may see that they're like the animals. Now again, it's not that he's forgotten that humans are different from every other animal because Genesis 1, they're made in his image. It's an absolute qualitative difference. We're made for glory in a way animals are not. He hasn't forgotten that. But God has put us in this world under the shadow of death to test us. That's what verse 18 says. So that we realize we're not immortal. We're not divine. We're not like him. We're distinctly limited. In the whole passage, there are only two things he tells us about God. One, that at the end of your life, God judges everything. Two, here and now, God is testing us by putting death in front of us, making us experience that, and saying, so what are you going to do with the fact that you'll die? How will that knowledge affect you? I read an interview uh, a couple of weeks ago with the wonderful Julie Walters, and she described how a couple of years ago, uh, described the scene of going to the hospital, getting a diagnosis of cancer. 
going sitting down and telling her husband and then just feeling numb and crying together and how she didn't tell the children uh middle-aged children um because she didn't want to stress them out and had the treatment but anyway two years for later on she's just been given the all clear strikingly she said i now view my illness as a gift because it's made me ask what matters it's changed the way I live my life. I'm no longer rushing about all the time, getting up at 5 a.m., coming home at midnight, and, and so on. Yeah, death makes you reevaluate. And she's saying, oh, because death came very close to me, I thought, well, what am I doing? And the teacher here says, hey, what are you going to do about the fact that you die? What are you going to do next? How are you going to shape your life because of that knowledge? And the outcome is we're meant to trust him and not trust yourself. Of course, 22, verse 22 puts it, enjoy life, but enjoy it as a gift of God. Look in a frustrating world where there's injustice and where you'll die. Don't trust yourself. Trust God. So there's the first. There's the first thing he's going to say. Look, don't pretend that you're God. Secondly, more briefly, don't grasp after too much. Chapter four, verses one to six. Again, I looked and he sees something else. I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. Well, that feels all very contemporary in the debates at the moment about justice and Black Lives Matter. And uh, uh, one side has all the power and there's oppression. And, well, I don't know. But whatever you make, for example, of the hauling down of the statue of Edward Colston this week, whether you think that's entirely right or they should have waited until there was um, a sort of legal decision to, uh, to have it removed, there is no doubt that there's a bloke who made all his money through oppression. Exploitation through the slave trade. I looked up a definition. Here's the dictionary definition. Oppression. Accumulation without regards to the needs and rights of other people. Accumulation without regard to the needs and rights of other people. You'll trample on others to gain for yourself. And sometimes he says, it's so miserable, perhaps it's better never to have been born. Verse 2, I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is one who has never been born, who has never seen the evil that's done under the sun. Again, he'll say something different. Chapter 9, verse 4, it's much better to be alive and a nobody than to be dead and a great person. Uh, much better to be alive. But here he's saying sometimes oppression is so terrible better never to have witnessed it at all. Verse 4, he carries on. I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, I don't think he's moved on. And well, there's a couple of verses on oppression. It's not good. Let, let, let me tell you about envy. Uh, I don't think they're different topics, but rather it is competition in business or in life the desire to get on that causes you to oppress others. 
I don't care who I step on to get to the top. It's that attitude he's attacking. The man who looks at a peer and says, well, I want more his God. I want his initials. I want VP, SVP, COO, CEO, whatever initials you desire. He's got them. I want them. He's envious. Again, I looked that up. Resentful longing aroused by another's possessions, qualities, or luck. That's envy. Resentful longing aroused by another's possessions, qualities, or luck. I want what he's got. And I'll step on whoever it takes to get it. And the teacher says, well, that's terrible. Of course, he doesn't encourage the other extreme. He doesn't encourage laziness. Uh, Verse 5, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. So don't work out of envy and competition and and therefore try and accumulate too much. But don't be lazy. Verse 5 is very vivid. It's literally in in the Hebrew, fools fold their hands and eat themselves. They can't be bothered to go to the fridge. I'm really hungry. There's the fridge. I can't go. I'll just, I'll just have a chomp upon my arm. It's a vivid picture. Don't be lazy. That'll never get you anything. And so his conclusion, verse 6, better one hand with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. So I guess the question raised is, what drives you at work? Are you chasing the wind? I just, I need more handfuls. Uh, I can't just get enough for what I need. I need more. Are you grasping after status? Are you envious of the recognition that others have and you'd really like? Longing to make a name for yourself. Is that what drives your labors? We'll be very careful because you may end up trampling all over other people to get what you desire. And that's terrible. So don't grasp after too much. You need to trust God. Don't pretend you're God. Trust him. Don't grasp after too much. Uh, Lastly, don't go it alone. Quite simple, really. These last few verses, probably the most simple uh, of the passage. Don't go it alone. Verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So he is a a person. He lacks the closest relationships of a son or a brother. So there's no one to pass on his inheritance to or this money he's earned. Probably it's that he hasn't got relatives and he's thrown himself into his work, I think is the most natural reading of it all. Um, You may recognize that at the moment. You know, life is a bit boring and locked out. You've thrown yourself into your work. It's that sort of sense to it. But he reflects and says, what am I doing? What am I doing? So you get a better alternative offered in verses 9 to 12. Verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Ah, a partnership. And I do think here he's primarily thinking about 
your labours and, and the workplace more than anything else. He really wants you to get this though, so he gives three little illustrations. Verse 10, if either one of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Uh, the plumber we quite often use if stuff goes wrong at home. There's two of them. And one of them's really busy right now because uh, his partner is, is sick, long, he's been sick for months. But what a blessing, there's two of them, that sort of principle. Or verse 11, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Well, I can get cold at night in the Middle East in the winter. And then the third illustration, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Two are better than one, two are better than one, two are better than one, three is even better than two. I don't think there's anything more profound than that. He's just saying it's better to work together. Verses 13 to 16, I think, are making a similar point. We won't go into it, but you have two lonely kings. One's an old king who used to take advice but no longer does. One's a young king who was popular but loses all his popularity. Two lonely kings. The point is, don't go it alone. Don't trust yourself. Trust God. A lovely counterexample to this. It made me think of uh, Julian Richer, who um, a year ago, it was uh, a year ago last May, he uh, made the headlines because you know, in the company Richer Sounds employed 510 or 530 staff. And at age 60, he thought, right, that's it and transferred 60% of the company's shares into a trust uh, managed on behalf of the staff. So it's become a bit like John Lewis partnership sort of thing. And on top of that, uh, he gave all of them on his 60th birthday uh, a bonus of £1,000 for every year they've worked. The average was £8,000 bonus, uh, but uh, I think like 30-odd staff had worked for more than 20 years, so a nice little bonus. And it's evident he's a good guy. Um, he's treated his staff really well. He has a number of holiday homes around the, around the globe and, and encourages the staff to use them. 70% of his staff had taken a holiday at one of his houses in the previous year. He's a generous guy, clearly, and they love him. It's pretty obvious. When he was interviewed, he's an interesting guy. He was interviewed, he said this. Oh, when I was younger, I lived the high life. I've had jets, helicopters, a Rolls-Royce supercars. I had two helicopters at one point. I can't actually remember now why one wasn't enough, but I had two. But things have changed. And now, age 60, I want to reward my loyal colleagues. I'm conscious that they've built the business with me. It goes on, there's plenty in the article about how he wants to encourage others to do similar. Uh, Riverford Farms have just done similar to uh, put invest the company in the hands of the, the staff and how good that is. And then just one tiny sentence at the bottom of the article. I was baptized when I was 47, and I'm very proud of that. I call my faith practical Christianity. I just want to try and make the world a better place. Just one little line buried. That's what's driven me. Oh, I lived for myself. Accumulation. Helicopter? Two helicopters. Why not? Private jet. Why not? I lived for all that. And then I realized, what's all that about? And now I want to share 
what I've made with others. I recognize we've done it together. And the difference was becoming a Christian. So this strange passage then in Ecclesiastes, don't pretend you're God because you're not. Don't grasp after too much. Don't go it alone. But trust God. Or in the wider frame of the Bible, trust Jesus. He is the ultimate wise man, the ultimate teacher. And he's the complete opposite in many ways of you and me because he was God, but chose the fate of humans and died. We want to be like God, but we don't. He was God, chose the fate of humans and died. He was God, but Philippians 2 will tell us he didn't grasp after equality with his father, but was quite happy to humbly live as a man. He spent eternity in fellowship with the father, his father, and God the Spirit, but came and died on the cross alone, so that you and I need never be alone, but can be taken into that friendship taken into the knowledge of God and live with him, Father, Son, and Spirit, forever. So we turn to the wider frame of the New Testament and think, yeah, God is really good. He's shown us that in Jesus. Why would I trust myself when I can trust him? Why would I trust myself in this frustrating world For I see there's injustice and there's a limit to what I can do. I know that I'll die. I I know that there's wickedness and oppression. I I see all the... I'll trust him. I'll trust him. Not grasp, not go it alone, not think I'm more important than I am. Recognize that God is very good. He's shown it in Jesus. Don't trust yourself. Trust him. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you in your wisdom. You give us the words of this teacher, and they are unsettling. Uh, They get under our skin. We think he overstates things. We're bewildered by how he phrases things because you want us to think. And so, Father, as we look at life in this frustrating world, this world under the sun, Would we not trust ourselves, accumulate for ourselves, go it alone, but would we trust you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.